The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. Hey, it's Suzanne Hogan, and today we're revisiting our very first episode of A People's History of Kansas City about a trio of sisters who occupied and saved a sacred native cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas. It originally aired in February of 2020, but the story didn't end there. In fact, this very podcast episode directly inspired several recent happenings in town, which have been really fun to follow in real time. I remember listening to it, and we both just looked at each other after the podcast and said, oh my God, like this is, this is so exciting. For me, it is incredibly significant to be Wyandotte in 2023 and telling this story. But before we get into what's new, I want to play you the episode as it aired back in 2020. Since we're celebrating four years of a people's history of Kansas City this month, it feels really fitting to go back to where it all started. Enjoy. This is A People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR 89.3. You can't stop time. You know, you're like, man, why didn't I know that before? This is my history. If we don't tell the stories, who is? And if they're lost in history, they're lost. You've probably heard of some of these big names in Kansas City history. Guys like Boss Tom Pendergast, William Rockhill Nelson, J.C. Nichols. Or maybe you haven't, but maybe you've seen the names around. On this podcast, we're telling the stories of everyone else, regular people in Kansas City, and the whole region. These people might be renegades, underdogs, women, people of color, folks who lots of times have been written out of history. These are people you've probably never heard of, but once you do hear about them, you'll start to see life around here a little differently. This episode is about a badass woman whose bravery and dedication to her people will amaze you. To start, I want to take you to a place that was really important to her. It's a sacred spot in downtown Kansas City, Kansas. We're at an American Indian cemetery, nestled between a bus depot, public library, and a casino. Hundreds of Wyandotte people are buried here. This cemetery was here before Kansas was Kansas, but it's a place that's continuously faced destruction. Janeth English is part of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas, she remembers visiting this place with her grandmother when she was just a little girl. They'd collected flowers to put on the graves of their family members. It was always such a nice walk and such a nice time with Grandma. And all of a sudden, she screamed. A group of boys started running away from the cemetery. And Grandma did not run, and she did not scream. And I, you know, I was just really confused. And so she ran after them, 
Grandma couldn't catch up with all the boys, but she caught up with one who told her what was going on. The rest, laughing, got away. And she came back and she was just crying, just sobbing. She said, they took it. They took my baby's marker. They told me they had to take it because it was a prize, one of the prizes they had to get in a scavenger hunt. And so we were walking by the graves and she started telling me about Lida, Lida Conley. And Lida fought quite a battle to save that cemetery. Lida Conley's efforts to save the cemetery is one hell of a story. From setting up an armed occupation in the middle of the cemetery in downtown Kansas City, Kansas, all the way to arguing a case before the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. She was part of an unprecedented fight for justice, but she also fought outside of the system, using radical tactics in an era when women, let alone Native women, were seen as second-class citizens. And like any good cemetery story, there's supposedly a curse that continues to protect the grounds to this day. So Lida Conley was born in the late 1800s. The exact year is unknown. Her father was a farmer of British descent and her mother was part Wyandotte, a descendant of the famous Chief Tarhe. She was one of four daughters. From what we know, Lida's childhood was pretty bleak. When she was maybe about 11, her mother and younger sister died. And then five years after that, her father died. And then a year after that, her grandmother passed away. They were all buried in that cemetery in downtown Kansas City, Kansas. This left Lida and her two sisters, Ida and Helena, to take care of themselves. It's pretty clear that they lived in poverty for much of their adult lives. Samantha Gill is a librarian and historian in Hayes, Kansas. She became fascinated by this whole story and decided to write her thesis on Lida Conley and the Wyandotte people. Lida worked as a telegraph operator and was a Sunday school teacher at the Methodist Church. She and her sister Helena put themselves through school. They paddled a boat across the Missouri River so they could go to college in Parkville. In 1886, Kansas City, Kansas officially became a city. Downtown Kansas City, Kansas, where the cemetery is, was prime real estate in an area that was developing quickly. Samantha Gill says the word was out that people were wanting to sell and develop that land. Imagine someone wanting to come in and desecrate the graves of your mother, your father, your grandmother, all of your ancestors just for a profit. It was nothing short of personal for her. So Lida decides to fight back in a pretty awesome way. She decides to enroll at the Kansas City School of Law in Missouri, and she gets her law degree in 1902. She was one of just a few women in her graduating class. Like, not only did she go to law school, pass the bar, but she was doing all of this before she even had the right to vote. This was just crazy. She was a Native American woman facing deep levels of systemic and social discrimination. But despite all that, she persevered and started preparing herself for a battle to save this cemetery using any means necessary. So I'm from Kansas City, and growing up, I had never heard of Lida Conley's story, but I really wish I had. My dad used to work around the corner from the cemetery, and I remember going there when I was a kid, but I always just knew it as a quiet cemetery in the midst of a city. I never knew its backstory. And to be honest, and perhaps this is not that surprising, 
when I was a kid, I was never really taught any of the real history of Native peoples in this country, let alone of my own region. It's something that, as an adult, I've been trying hard to fix and teach myself. You can't tell Lida Conley's story without telling the story of her Native heritage. So we're going to spend a few minutes summarizing this really complicated history of the Wyandotte people and how they ended up in Kansas City, Kansas. Had to do with colonialization uh, is a short answer. A short answer that we know is quite loaded. Janeth English is Wyandotte. Wyandots are sometimes called Huron, which is a little bit controversial. They originally lived along the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes region in Canada. The men wore their hair in what would be a roach headdress with the hair uh, straight up. Some people might call it a mohawk. The French decided that the hairstyle reminded them of the stiff bristles that stood up on the neck of a wild pig. So the name Huron comes from Old French meaning the bristled hairs of a boar. It's a name that stuck over time. Everyone in Canada reveres the name, but I'm a little uncomfortable sometimes when I hear it. We'll say Wyandotte from here on out. Now, the Wyandots were a matriarchal society made up of different clans. Their language is part of the Iroquoian linguistic family. Quay is hello. My name is Atrandahawate. Umataru is my family. The 17th and 18th centuries were filled with conflicts between tribes and with European settlers. By the early 1700s, the Wyandots had been pushed to a region in Ontario in the Detroit Bay, what later became the states of Michigan and Ohio. Historian Samantha Gill. When I was doing my research, I felt like every single twist and turn and every single time that the Wyandots thought, you know, we're settled, we're going to live a peaceful life, It was just another white conflict hit them. They gained strength by creating alliances with other Native groups and with white settlers. They had been influenced by white culture so early on. Uh, I mean, the last known full-blooded Wyandotte actually died in, they think, 1820. There was a lot of interracial marriages and biracial children, and this was actually greatly encouraged by the U.S. government. The U.S. government wanted Native Americans to assimilate, to adopt their Christian faith and social customs. They believed that intermingling with Natives would help with westward expansion. The Wyandots, in many respects, had been doing that. Also, while they were living in Ohio, another major cultural shift happened for the Wyandotte people. They met John Stewart. He was black. He was a black missionary. John Stewart had been born to free parents who had mixed white, black, and Native ancestry. In 1816, he went to Ohio and successfully converted the Wyandots, establishing what is often considered the first Methodist mission in America. So even though a lot of the Wyandots were practicing Methodists who had been starting families with Europeans and African-Americans, they were still forced to leave their settlement again in the mid-1800s because of the Indian Removal Act. They just really wanted to stay in their home. They were tired of getting moved around. But in 1842, they signed a treaty. Then about 700 Wyandots traveled by steamboat down the Mississippi, then up the Missouri to where the Missouri meets the Kaw. This is right on the border of Missouri and modern day Kansas. When they arrived, it was midsummer and they were dropped off on the banks of the river in the middle of a heavy rainstorm and discovered that they had no land. 
They found that it was already occupied by two tribes, the Shawnee and the Delaware. And they they didn't understand why the land, all this land that was promised to them already had occupants on it. In that first year in their new home, the Wyandots camped on the banks of the river. And the conditions were rough. Nearly 100 people died that year. Their bodies were taken to a high ridge that overlooked the rivers, and they were buried. That's when the cemetery was established. So that kind of shows you just how bad this deal was. Before they could even establish a town, a settlement, they had to establish a cemetery. The Wyandots made a deal with the Delaware tribe and settled in that stretch of land at the top of the banks where the cemetery was. And they started building Wyandot City. And they, they really got to work to making sure that this town had law and order in a rather lawless part of the state. It wasn't even a state yet, but they were so close to Missouri, they wanted to make sure that they kind of had order in never-ending chaos. They quickly established a Methodist church, a schoolhouse, blacksmith shop, general store. They even had their own constitution that they brought with them from Ohio. They also helped establish another abolitionist settlement just up the river, a town called Quindaro. This place would later become an important part of the Underground Railroad for Freedom Seekers. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute. So this was the mid-1800s. Violent confrontations over the issue of slavery were erupting along the border of Missouri and the Kansas Territory. And the Wyandots found themselves at the center of all the drama. So, in 1855, they have lived in the Kansas Territory now for less than 10 years, and the United States is already wanting them to move. The U.S. wanted to create a new treaty with the Wyandots, the Treaty of 1855. And this treaty becomes really important later on in Lyda Conley's story. The treaty basically said that Wyandots could move to a reservation in Oklahoma and keep their tribal rights, or stay in Kansas to become absentee Wyandots, which meant they would become United States citizens, but would forfeit any claim to the tribe. But there was one other important part to this treaty. The land that contained the cemetery was still protected. The treaty split up the tribe between those who stayed and those who left for Oklahoma. In 1861, Kansas entered the Union as a free state. The Civil War broke out. Many Wyandots who stayed enlisted, fighting for the Union. And many who died were buried in the cemetery. So the Civil War ended in 1865. And it's around this time that our heroine, Lida Conley, is born. 
At this point, the U.S. government allowed Wyandotte people who had lost their tribal rights to reestablish themselves within the tribe. Lyda Conley's mom wrote a letter to the Office of Indian Affairs asking to put herself and her daughters on the list so she could regain her tribal rights. But the request didn't get acknowledged. So fast forward to 1902. Lyda Conley's had a rough childhood. She supported herself through law school in a time when she didn't even have the right to vote, while Kansas City, Kansas was developing into a city. And then here enters another important character, William Conley. No relation to Lyda Conley, which is kind of weird, I know, but whatever. He was a historian and land surveyor, and he had actually written a lot about the Wyandotte people. He'd even surveyed all the unknown graves in the cemetery. The Wyandotte tribe of Oklahoma, those who had relocated before the Civil War, gave him power of attorney, and he thought it would make sense for them, and him, financially, to sell the cemetery. So in 1906, he got a clause added to a federal law that essentially dissolved the part of the Treaty of 1855 that protected the cemetery. And the other part of it all was that the bodies in the cemetery were to be excavated and moved to the cemetery in Quindaro. And Lida was like, I don't think so. You know, she said, we're going to go to battle. Judy Manthe is a member of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas and is a cousin of Lida's. They shut the gates and padlocked them, hung a sign over the, the cemetery gates, trespassers beware, and they built a shack called Fort Conley. Fort Conley was a six by eight foot shack that the sisters built over their family's graves. They armed themselves with their dad's shotgun and they lived in Fort Conley every day through cold winters, hot summers, protecting the cemetery grounds from trespassers. There's tons of newspaper articles regarding them. And in the first couple of years, papers reported on them kind of in a curious light. Historian Samantha Gill says media exposure, some good, some bad, gave the sisters a lot of attention and admiration from local women's groups. Meanwhile, Lida got to work preparing her legal case. She filed a petition claiming that the sale of the cemetery grounds was in violation of Article 6 of the Constitution that made all treaties supreme law of the land, which was a reference to the Treaty of 1855 and the part that protected the cemetery. It was a tricky argument because it wasn't just the U.S. government that was wanting to sell this land. It was the part of the Wyandotte tribe in Oklahoma wanted to sell this land. Lida had used the Treaty of 1855 in her argument, but the courts used that against her, saying that she was not technically a Wyandotte tribal member, so she had no right to the land. But she appealed. In 1910, her case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. No man in Washington would vouch for her character to practice before the high court, so she had to represent herself as a plaintiff. She was actually the first Native American woman to go against the Supreme Court and the third woman in history to go against the Supreme Court. So that's a very, very significant accomplishment. In her lengthy testimony, Lida quotes scripture numerous times. She pleads to the judges trying to appeal to their emotions. 
But in the end, the Supreme Court upheld the lower court's ruling, and they ruled against her. She lost. They did, however, waive her legal fees. But this did not stop the Conley sisters' armed resistance from inside Fort Conley, the little shack in the cemetery. The sisters spent some time in jail, and, you know, one of the times that she, Lida, you know, went to jail and she paid her fine, and the judge said, you know, don't go back, and she basically told the judge, you know, okay, thanks for the warning, but I'll be there in tomorrow. So nothing was going to stop her. Lida's sister Helena was said to believe in spirits and supernatural powers. She openly talked about damning trespassers and cursing those who would molest the graves of her ancestors. They sent military troops from Fort Leavenworth to destroy the shack and uh, remove the women. And every time they would tear down the shack, by the next day, it would be rebuilt. And the women said, they're like, you can tear it down as many times as you want, but we will rebuild. Eventually, authorities not only destroyed the shack, but the lumber too. Fort Conley was no more. You know, even though she, I like to say she lost the battle, she more or less won the war because the recognition and the media attention that she got from the case in 1910, this caught the attention of Charles Curtis. Charles Curtis was a senator in Kansas who was also part caw. He created a bill in 1913 that protected the cemetery, saying that it should be preserved and not sold for development. Despite that piece of legislation, though, the sisters, who never married and never had children, continued to look over the cemetery for the rest of their lives. And they looked after each other, staying active in the Methodist church. Even though Lida could practice law in Missouri and Kansas, she used her law degree sparingly. She only tried cases that would help Native Americans. She did not do any others. Again, Judy Manthe, Lida's cousin. We're at the cemetery where Lida Conley and her family and ancestors are buried. She was on her way home, got into her front yard, I guess, and somebody with a brick picked it up and smashed her in the back of the head. It was 1946 when Lida Conley was attacked and mugged for 20 cents in her purse. She died 24 hours after the assault. Senseless, senseless death. At her funeral, the pastor said this. In every breeze that stirs these trees, in every flower that graces this lofty hilltop, the work of Lida Conley will always be recalled even when important men are forgotten. In this place, this cemetery, Lida Conley will always be recalled even when important men are forgotten. But still, the battle wasn't over for the cemetery, as it continued to face threats from vandals and developers. In the late 1990s, the Wyandotte Nation of Oklahoma, which is, remember, the Wyandotte tribe that's federally recognized by the U.S., they pushed for the construction of a casino and bingo hall on the cemetery grounds. One proposal suggested building the casino on pillars above the cemetery. And this got the attention of Janet English, who is also a cousin of Lida Conley's. The thought of building a casino next to the cemetery, <laughs> I, I think I must have had kind of understand a Lida moment. As part of her call to action, her Lida moment, 
Janeth English became the principal chief of the Wyandotte Nation of Kansas in 1996. The Wyandotte Nation of Kansas is still petitioning for federal recognition without success, though they are recognized by the state of Kansas. Chief Janeth fought against the casino proposal, but after a long battle, the casino opened in 2008, just south of the cemetery in a former Scottish Rite temple. In 2017, the cemetery was made a National Historic Landmark, a major designation that Janeth English hopes should protect the cemetery into the future. But who knows? It seems like every generation there's been a threat. She's determined to keep Lida's story alive because it's the story of a woman's quest for the recognition of her indigenous heritage and the preservation of her ancestors' stories. As we tell the stories that we've had from years and decades ago, we hope that that's a gift. Judy Manthe says when she visits the cemetery, she doesn't hear the sounds of traffic and the city that surrounds it today. When she's here, the noises seem to fade away as she recalls the stories of her ancestors and the importance of preserving the history of this place. If we don't tell the stories, who is? And if they're lost in history, they're lost. And if you don't tell history's story, sometimes it repeats itself, most times it repeats itself. She hopes that at this place, people will remember the story of the Wyandotte people and Lyda Conley and her fight to protect this sacred space, even when important men are forgotten. So that's where we left things back in 2020. But since then, there's been some exciting movement in this story. One person who is a part of that is Nisa Page Lieberman, who is a public arts curator and is the founder of Monumenta, which we're going to hear about more in a second. But Nisa, let's go back. When did you first hear about Lida Conley and her sisters? Well, I heard about it in your show, which debuted right when I moved to Kansas City. I think this show debuted like the first week of February. Uh huh. Right? <laughs> My husband, Stuart Carden, is the artistic director of KC Rep Theater, and we moved here for his job. And so both of us were looking for the great stories. And we listened to the podcast about Lida Conley and she and her sister's epic battle to save the Wyandotte National Burying Ground. And I remember listening to it, and we both just looked at each other after the podcast and said, oh my God, like this is, this is so exciting. This needs a play. This needs a monument. And so Stuart was soon introduced to Madeline Easley, who's a, a Wyandotte playwright, and she agreed to, to tell this story. The new play about Lyda Conley is called Representatives for Those at Peace, and it's written by Madeline Easley. She's a member of the Wyandotte Nation, and some KCUR listeners actually heard Madeline interviewed on our talk show back in November, right before Representatives for Those at Peace made its world premiere in a stage reading at KC Rep. Looking at Lyda's story, I was struck at the struggle that she had to endure to do something great. As a Wyandotte woman, I think about my life today and, you know, would I have the bravery to do what she did? And I think the honest answer is no. But I think her story and how hard she had to work and what she went up against is still very relevant to today. 
And it's so significant to be able to tell our own stories because some might say the victor writes history. Well, we're still here. So uh, we are victors in our own way. And one of the things I really enjoyed about that interview, you know, among many, was hearing about how Madeline was the inaugural recipient of the Four Directions Playwright Residency, a collaboration between Casey Rep and other arts organizations. And she basically got to attend residencies in four different parts of the country to develop the play. So to have this opportunity to develop this play in community with uh, my people, the Wyandots, it's, it's never been done before to my knowledge. And it's so incredibly significant. And I think it marks a new benchmark and in investment in Native theater. So Nisa Page-Lieberman, eventually this collaboration grew into a bigger event. There was that stage reading of the play and then a panel discussion. Can you paint me a picture of what that was like? One, I think, really exciting fact about this is that Maddie's play was the first staged reading ever to sell out at Kansas City Rep. And so I think, you know, a lot of the Wyandots weren't surprised at all. They said, trust us. Like, they know how how people respond to the story and just really kind of how magic the story is. And then the panel discussion and events we did the next day... And a lot of people came who are really invested in kind of changing the dominant narratives that we all experience in our public spaces all the time. And, you know, we also held it one block away from the cemetery. So after the talk, we all went over to the cemetery and and the Wyandots had put out all these signs and markers. So you literally could walk up to the space where the fort was and you could see all of the, the gravestones, the final resting places of all these people that we've heard about. And here they are, right? This is where they were laid to rest. And this was the space that they fought so hard to save. So your organization, Monumenta, has been working with tribal members and artists to create a monument to Lida Conley and her sisters. Can you tell me more about that? So, you know, I'm a public art curator and I work with communities to develop monuments and other public art activations to tell their stories. And the communities I work with are usually people who feel like their histories and their stories live on the margins of a more dominant narrative about our culture. And through Maddie Easley, I was introduced to Chief Judy Manthe. You know, I had no idea if she was interested in, like, producing a monumental public art project. And it turns out, you know, not only was she interested, but, like, she's been just doing this through many different ways for for decades. And we started just building a, a coalition to imagine this and kind of plot it out. And we came up with a name called Trespassers Beware. And this, our group is, you know, lots of indigenous people and lots of non-native allies like myself. And when we started thinking about where this could be, you know, where would this monument live? Chief Judy, you know, she started talking about all the different places in Kansas City that have been impacted by the Wyandots. You know, not only that they were so central in founding Kansas City on on both state lines, Kansas and Missouri, but there were so many places that they either were present or developed or impacted. And so that's when we came up with this idea for a mobile monument, something we could create that we could move around to all these different places. And part of the reason for that is to just meet people where they are. So her idea is to, you know, 
especially reach out to younger generations so that through this, the story can go on and the story won't be erased. I love hearing you say that. So much of that type of thinking goes into like the creating of this whole podcast and like, and, you know, even just my own path of discovering Lida Conley's story for me was like all these different light bulbs going off about possibilities and wanting to learn more, wondering why I didn't know more and wanting to be a part of helping to like bridge the gap and connect the dots and help other people be along for the journey. And it sounds like in a lot of ways, this is all just the beginning. I think it's very much the beginning. The format of a mobile monument is something that not a lot of people have experimented with. In addition to that, Samantha Gill, who was our historian in the episode, just reached out to us to tell us that there's going to be a book coming out next year about all of this called the Lida Conley series, which will be a part of a bigger thing about like telling stories of trailblazing indigenous peoples. And I think it's exciting to see like just the ripple effect go even further and further. And it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Nisa Page Lieberman, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for talking with me. Well, thank you. Thank you to you for this podcast because it really it, it really changed everything for, for Stuart and myself. You know, it just inspired us so much about learning about this region and getting excited to, to tell the stories through the arts of, of the people that live here. So thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. This episode, as published back in 2020, was reported, produced, and mixed by me, Suzanne Hogan, with editing by Sylvia Maria Gross. The update was produced by senior producer Mackenzie Martin with editing by Gabe Rosenberg. Music this episode from Primary Color, Vortex, Ryan Little, Raphael Archangel, Blue Dot Sessions, and Hinterheim. And for real, thanks so much for supporting this show over the past four years. We really couldn't continue to bring you these stories without you. So thanks for the kind words, feedback, and all the ideas you've been sending. And please keep them coming. And if you haven't yet... Write us a review, rate the podcast, or even better, share it with a friend. That kind of stuff really does help us out. You can shoot us an email at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. And we also have a Facebook group you can join for more stories about the people who created Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. We'll be back next month with a brand new story. Take care, and thanks for listening. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network.